through 25 seasons. Hey! 4,561 episodes. I believe the Oprah Winfrey Show was one of the greatest classrooms in the world. I really never thought of it that way. The aha moments, the breakthroughs, the LOLs, the connections, the occasional ugly cry. I miss him so terribly. I miss him every single minute. The moments that mattered. The eye-opening life lessons. Never allow them to take you somewhere else. I'm bringing them back. It's time to open the vault. I've personally chosen these classic episodes to share with you again. Every single person you ever will meet shares that common desire. They want to know, do you see me? Do you hear me? Does what I say mean anything to you? You are listening to The Oprah Winfrey Show, the podcast. Five young women kidnapped by a lunatic, a madman taken to an underground dungeon, held in chains as sex slaves, and nobody finds out for 15 years. Yeah. Yes. Right here in the United States. It really happened, and it happened in suburban America. This first story contains some disturbing details that are graphic in nature. Just want you to know. It's a story so frightening and shocking it made headlines around the world. Picture this, a dungeon and sex slaves chained in a dark secret chamber of horrors. This is the most bizarre thing that, that I've ever seen. What's so inconceivable is that it all happened in this house in the middle of an upscale neighborhood outside of Syracuse, New York. No one had a clue that a vicious sexual predator lurked behind these walls. Over a period of 15 years, eccentric loner and millionaire John Jamelski abducted five women, kept them imprisoned in a cold concrete dungeon that he built four feet underground. There, he repeatedly raped them. Kirsten was Jamelski's first victim. He kidnapped her in 1988 when she was just 14 years old. I was held captive for two and a half years. He raped me every day. Sometimes it was once a day, sometimes it was more. I tried to fight him all the time, but if I fight, what's gonna happen? Home video used as evidence later revealed Jamelski's bizarre behavior Jennifer, a 26-year-old single mother of two, was abducted in 2001 and was held hostage for two months. The first day that I was there, he tried to rape me and I fought him, and then he burned me on the back with a cigar. And then that's when I just stopped fighting him. I got to bathe maybe once every two weeks while he watched. He never let me brush my teeth. Sheriff Kevin Walsh describes the horrific conditions. It's a frightening place. You have to get down on your hands and knees on the basement floor and crawl in and then go down below that. I had a bathtub and a toilet seat on a, on a five-gallon bucket. In the next room, there's a piece of plywood and a piece of foam rubber that was used as, as a bedroom. All I kept thinking was, oh, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. Never going to see my kids again. Never going to see my family. So... How was Jamelski able to lure, lure Kirsten and Jennifer into this hellish ordeal? Kirsten recalls that fateful night. Let's take a look. Kirsten says she was out drinking with friends. Though she doesn't recall, her friends claim John Jamelski pulled up in his car and she got in. The next thing I remember is waking up in the well. I had no clothes on and I had a chain around my ankle. 
He wouldn't tell me where I was, and he just said, you're here to have sex with me every day. After keeping Kirsten captive in a well for 11 months, Jamelski moved her to this concrete bunker that he built beneath his home. A typical day would be that I would be laying on the foam mattress, and he would come down to have sex with me. I tried to escape, but there were so many lacks. I cried every day. I really thought I was going to die. Jamelski made Kirsten write letters to her family saying she was fine and there was no need to worry. I would write all the time, but I mean, how many letters would make it? I don't know. Then one day, Jamelski mysteriously let Kirsten go. When I was finally released, we didn't call the cops because he had always told me, we know where you live and we'll come and kill someone in your family. In the 12 years following Kirsten's release, Jamelski continued his crazed sex spree. He kidnapped and raped four more women. On May 11, 2001, 26-year-old Jennifer was another unsuspecting victim. I was walking from one friend's house to another, and I was heavily intoxicated. Jamelski offered her a ride home, but instead of going to her house, he drove to his. As soon as he got out of the car, I tried getting out of the car and I couldn't get the passenger side door open and that was the last thing I remember. And when she awoke, Jennifer found herself at the center of Jamelski's twisted world. I was naked laying on a floor, it was wet. My ankle was chained to like the steel grate and I was scared and I was cold and I didn't know what was going on. I had to have sex with him every day. My family probably thought I was dead. They had search parties, um, missing pictures all over. Kids at school were telling my son, who was 11 at the time, that I was probably dead. And that's when Jamelski said, you know, that I could write a letter home. But I had to say that I was in a drug rehab. Sounds unbelievable, doesn't it? Well, Jennifer was held captive in Jamelski's underground bunker for two and a half months. Kirsten was there two and a half years, but Jennifer was there two and a half months, and then one day, without explanation, he just let her go. Unlike Kirsten, Jennifer did go to the police, but when she went to the police, investigators didn't believe her because it was such an outrageous story. Kirsten and Jennifer are here today. Unbelievable that you are alive to tell this story yes, because, thank yeah, because, thank and we're going to talk to the sheriff later. I mean, normally when something like this happens, people are found buried under the ground yeah. someplace. So what was it like living in this Jamelski's dungeon? What was a typical day like for you? You said you were raped every day. Yeah, raped every day. Um, the treatment that I received down there was no less than an animal. I mean, an animal gets treated better uh -huh. than I did. I mean, I didn't get to bathe. I didn't get to brush my teeth. I got to eat once a day. I had to urinate in a bucket. Mm -hmm. And it was just, it was just unspeakable. It was like hell. Yeah, it was definitely yeah. hell. Yeah. And you lived that for two and a half months. Yeah. And what was his communication with you? What was he saying to you? Um, he basically was telling me that um, his bosses were selling me over the internet for $30,000 in that they he, were selling you over the internet. Yeah. Yeah. And um, he said that he, I said I didn't want that. And he said um, that he was going to talk to them and try to save me from them. Uh-huh. 
So, so you thought sound... there were other people involved? Yeah. 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 And did you also, Kirsten, all yeah. this time think that yeah. there were other people involved? Yeah, yeah, it's, that's what he told mm -hmm. us, that he just worked there, that there were bosses that... Yeah. Were there other women in the house at the same time you were? Do you know? Mm, not no. That no. 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 Did you ever try to scream? Oh, yeah. I'd scream every day until I couldn't scream anymore. Uh-huh. Yeah. And nobody ever heard me. Uh-huh. I mean, uh -huh. we were, like, at least, I think it was, like, six to eight feet underground. I'm not exactly sure. Did you ever try to escape? Oh, yeah. I'd yeah. pound and pull on the steel doors until my hands were raw and bleeding. Uh -huh. And then I'd have to stop when it hurt too much. And then I'd just stop and then... So after two and a half years, do you lose track of time? Yeah. Was there any reference to time? Was there like a TV or...? There was a TV uh -huh. after a while. Uh -huh. Which one of you, I'd read, had seen stories of your own disappearance? That was me. Yeah. That was me. And um, I'd seen my family on TV trying to get a search party together to look for my body, basically. They thought I was dead. They didn't know. Mm -hmm. And um, then after a month of being there, Jamowski let me write a letter home but he said I had to say that I was in a drug rehab and I was fine and that um, I would be home. And so the cops and my, my family called off the search. But my mom said that she knew in her heart that there, that there was something wrong with me. So what did you say in that letter? Do you remember? Um, I just basically, because he, he sat there and dictated what yeah. I was to write. So basically I just told him that I was okay and that I was in a drug rehab and I would be home, but I didn't know when. Uh-huh. And that was basically all that he let me write. Well, it's so psychotic that when this story made headlines, it sounded like fiction, really. You don't want to believe that it could happen here in an American suburb. During a 15-year period, eccentric millionaire, we're told, John Jamelski, abducted five young women and uh, held them in this underground dungeon in chains and raped them repeatedly. Jamelski was able to keep his sick world completely hidden from his neighbors and authorities until one fateful day when he would make a crucial error. Jamelski abducted his final victim, a 16-year-old African-American girl in October 2002. Her family reported her missing, but the case came up empty. We didn't know if she was alive or dead. That all changed on April 8th. On that day, Jamelski brought his victim to FM Returnables, a bottle redemption center. Terry Carncross works there. He used to come in the bottle return every week and pick in the trash. I always thought he was a little strange, but harmless. I was working out at the counter, and he came in through the back and walked right in past me into the office. Victim number five asked Terry if she could use the phone, saying she wanted to call a church. She was speaking very quietly, very hunched over in the chair. That's because she wasn't calling a church. She dialed her sister Angela in a cry for help. I asked her if she was being held against her will, and she said yes. And then she also whispered into the phone. She said, I'm with a rapist. Angela's sister then ended the call abruptly. Meanwhile, Jamelski told Terry he was going to the pet store up the street. When he left, Terry got a very strange call. It was a girl asking if so-and-so was there, and I said, there's a girl who was just here with a guy, John. She said, well, that's my sister, and he's holding her hostage and raping her. And when I was speaking with Terry, she let me know that 
They were en route to Canada, but he was going to be stopping at another store. And at that point, Terry and I, we got a strategy together. Terry then called Ken, the manager of the pet store. Jamelski was walking into the store when she called. We went outside and came back in with this young-looking girl uh, who was very withdrawn, uh, wouldn't really make eye contact, and I just felt that there was something not right. After he left, I looked out the window, got his license plate, and called 911. And so John Jamelski was, was, was arrested that day and his final victim was freed. The entire community was horrified when they learned that this sick predator had been living among them. So I, I don't know, how did you cope during that time? I basically, I prayed to God every night. Um, I talked to myself a lot. Um, and I just thought of my kids and my family. How old were your kids? They were 11 and 9 at the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so they were young. Mm -hmm. Both my boys, yeah. Mm -hmm. And how did you cope? Two and a half years, how did you cope? I did the same thing she did. I just prayed every day and mm -hmm. just wanted to go home. I was so young, just wanted to go home. Mm -hmm. And how has it affected your life now? Um, I really don't go out much. I'm just usually in the house a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, really antisocial. Mm -hmm. I just don't even want to. Did you go get out. counseling after this? No, I haven't. Yeah, that's my reaction too. <laughs> I mean, how? How? Okay. I I just tried to pick up my life, and I went back to school, and eventually, you know, had a baby and got a job, and. I never thought it was going to come back 15 years later. Because you didn't tell anybody because you were afraid. Because he had, um... You were 14 when you were abducted? Yeah. 14 when you were abducted. He, um, he had brought me pictures of my younger brother and said that, um, he would kill him if, um, I had ever went to the police. So what did you tell people you were for two and a half years? Um, well, he had me writing letters home telling my parents. But when you then were, he finally released you one day, right? Yes. And said, you can go. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what do you then say to your family? Where have you been? Well, I told my mother and um, we both decided that, you know, we weren't gonna go to the police because he said that he was gonna kill my family. He brought me pictures of my house and my mother and father and my little mm -hmm. brother. And I just didn't know if it was, you know, yeah. like. I understand the fear, but you know, and do you ever think because you didn't say anything that four other women ended up being abducted? Yeah, I didn't know that. I, yeah. I mean, he showed me a badge, a police badge, and said that the cops were involved. Yeah, he, he also said yeah. that, that. And that was actually taken the, into evidence, the badge uh -huh. that he had. Uh -huh. I mean, that, had, that put a fear in me. But, yeah. But my, my mother convinced me to tell the cops the story. Mm -hmm. She said, you should tell it anyways. So okay, so you went to the cop, to the police, mm -hmm. you tell the story, mm -hmm. and you were not believed. Right, right, yeah. It, I mean, it's a far-fetched story, and I mean, I gave them every bit of evidence that I knew, but I guess it just wasn't enough. Okay. To... Because you didn't, uh, were, were you like blindfolded, so you didn't yeah, have an address? Yeah, when I went home, yeah. Yeah, you didn't know you yeah. didn't know location like where i lived. knew the house was blue and i knew um that it was on like a kind of busy road and 
Um, I mean, I knew what kind of car he picked me up in. I, I told the cops it was a 74 Mercury Comet, and it was actually a 75 Mercury Comet. Uh -huh. And they just, they never found anything. So I, I don't know. I mean, I did, I gave him everything that I knew, I mean. Because when he released you, he gave you $200. Yeah, and, yeah, and I didn't want it. I, I didn't want to take it, and then when he but had me But you took it because... Uh, no, yeah. when he had me handcuffed, he put it in my pocket. Mm -hmm. And so I had no choice but to take it. And then I gave that to the police to see if maybe they could get fingerprints or something, and I don't think... I don't know if they got any fingerprints or... So do you, did the police try, or did you think that you just were not taken seriously? I don't think I was taken seriously, honestly. How could you not be taken seriously when there had been all these stories about you missing on the news and your family? I think because of the, the letter that I had to write saying that I was okay. Yeah. Okay, on July 15, 2003, John Jamelski finally faced a judge. After his sentencing, he shared his twisted thoughts about his victims, his dungeon, and his crimes. You are a sick coward. You're an evil man, a kidnapper, and a rapist. John Jamelski was charged and pled guilty to five counts of kidnapping in the first degree. He received minimal sentence, 18 years to life. I seriously doubt that he will ever see the light of day again, and, and I'm very thankful for that. Jamelski appeared surprised by his harsh sentence. I'm thinking, you know, maybe I'm going to get some community service or something of, of that nature. He thought he was going to get like a slap on the wrist. I am sick to my stomach. I was taking Viagra. He thought the girls were having fun. He thought they enjoyed his company. I'm a pretty nice guy. I mean, it seemed like, you know, he wasn't the bad guy. He told me that the cops were involved and he actually showed me a badge. Yeah, I told him that I can't make the decision as to, you know, when you go home. So, you know, you can't cry on my shoulder. He thought he provided them with a place where they could watch television, relax all day, have nothing to do, no responsibilities. Talking to him, it seems like he really believes that he was helping them. I would not mind living down there. It was absolutely beautiful. How does a quiet, church-going man become a dungeon master? Jamelski claims his sex obsessions began in 1985 when his wife Dorothy, a preschool teacher, became gravely ill. We rushed her to the hospital hemorrhaging. They couldn't get the blood into her faster than it was coming out. And I, we almost lost her a couple of times. Oh, I always loved her very much every single second. But, you know, uh, sex was pretty much out of the question. Jamelski claimed that he needed to have sex, but his wife was too sick, so he started to look elsewhere. I never hurt anyone physically. It was this twisted perspective that eventually led to his arrest. After 15 years, his reign of terror came to an end in a Syracuse courtroom. Mr. Jamelski, there's no question in my mind you should die in prison for what you have done these five months. I'm just truly sorry for what I did. Yeah, that's what I think, too. It's yeah. just so sick. Yeah. When you see him, what do you think or feel? I just, I can't believe that he could do that to, to us and, you know, get away with it for so long. And it really, I, like, I'm queasy just seeing him and hearing him say, like, he just thinks that 
he didn't do anything wrong. <laughs> like it was some paradise down there or something. Sheriff Kevin Walsh was uh, the officer in charge of this case. Why didn't police believe Jennifer's story? Well, I think uh, Jamelski did a great job of setting her up. Uh, the letters home uh, made us suspicious uh, of the story. I think initially when we, we first heard about her kidnapping and rape, the detectives looked at it and said, you know, this is very bizarre, it's very unusual, but they went ahead and they did what needed to be done in the investigation. But as bits and pieces came in, the letters home that said that she was in a drug rehab center, they followed those up, but uh, they'd been mailed out of the Rochester area, and the, uh, all the drug rehab centers would give us no information because of confidentiality. So we couldn't confirm whether she'd been in a, a drug rehab center or not. He also set her up when, she, when he took her home, because she went home blindfolded and handcuffed and convinced that she was going to be killed. Mm -hmm. And when she got out of the car, she thanked him for not killing her. She thanked God for mm -hmm. uh, being released. A neighbor overheard that and told our detectives, when she got out of the car, she thanked the guy for the ride home. Now, that's the kind of contradictory information that led the detectives, uh, in collaboration with the district attorney's office, to say, you know, we haven't got enough to go forward with this case. We, we didn't know where she was held. We didn't have a location to look at. Uh, they did what they could on the case. They didn't go far enough with the car. Uh, she had told us a 74 Comet. They searched for 74 Comets. There was none in our central New York area that fit the description. Mm -hmm. It was a 75 Comet, and they should have really gone farther. But given the contradictory information, <laughs> That, that Go ahead. Given the contradictory information, they just decided that there was no case to go, there was nowhere to go with it, and stopped the investigation at that point. Until we got some additional information. Okay, and why this is upsetting you because? Because I told them everything that I knew. Mm -hmm. I mean, they didn't even take a composite of the guy when I told them. I knew exactly what he looked like. You know, the car was this, I said 74, it was a 75. You know, it's not my job to bring him. God, I gave him, and when I got out of the car, I was thinking, God, I never once thanked to him. I thanked God. I looked at the sky and I said, thank you, God, for letting me be alive. Thank you for letting me see the sky, you know. Okay, Sorry. so when you then found out about, when you heard about the, uh, his last victim, is that when, obviously, you had the guy, so you felt it was, it was serious enough to be taken seriously? At that point, uh, a couple of things happened. When we, when we went into the house and uh, the first detective to crawl into the bunker saw written on the wall, uh, the wall of thugs, which is exactly what Jennifer had told him. Uh, he immediately went to her house and... He went to Jennifer. To Jennifer's house, mm -hmm. uh, and she How identified... How long her. after Jennifer release, was released was the last victim taken? Uh, I think it was a good year, at least. A good year. Yeah. And how long had she been held hostage? About seven and a half months. About seven and a half months. Okay. His wife was upstairs, was living upstairs? She died in uh, 1990. Eight. So mm -hmm. for the, most of that period of time, all the time that Kirsten was there uh, and the two or three of the other victims, 
uh, he, she was alive in the house. And he has three sons? Three sons. One is a, uh, a high school uh, principal or vice principal. Uh, one is a college professor. And one that li still lives in the area is, uh, was unemployed at the time that we were dealing with him. And they knew nothing about his goings on, I suppose. Well, they, uh, in, in interviewing his sons, they, they were able to tell us that uh, dad was strange and uh, he, had, uh, uh, he had a fixation with, with younger women and uh, he was always talking about his young girlfriends. Uh, I don't believe that uh, at least two of the boys had any knowledge that he was holding people captive, though they had, uh, they had seen people around the house. Now, they were all out of the house. Uh, they're men now in their 40s. Mm -hmm. uh, but they were all out of the house at the time that, that uh, the girls were held captive in there. Okay, now let me just ask you as the sheriff, and you know, you've had time, hindsight is 2020. Sure oftentimes. Is. Do you think that your team dropped the ball well, I don't think there's any question that uh, we made mistakes. And in, in looking at it in hindsight, we can certainly see the mistakes that we made. Probably because, you know, what I think often happens is that, you know, I know this happens in court, you know, where you have two sides, and sometimes one side wants to just to be able to say, I'm sorry, I know this is wrong, but the lawyers say, no, you can't. And I think that, you know, in, in, uh, in Jennifer's case, you know, maybe even just an apology, just an acknowledgement that, we were wrong. We were wrong would be helpful. Don't you think? I mean, that's what I'm feeling. I mean, just for somebody to say, you know what? We dropped the ball. We should have followed up on, yeah. Uh, Jennifer, there's no question that we dropped the ball in your case. And uh, I've told you this uh, at least a year ago when yeah. uh, we met. Uh, I told you at that time how sorry I was yeah. that, that we didn't do more. Uh, okay. I appreciate and it. Thank you very much. You know, sometimes that means more than anything, I think. Yeah. yeah. Thank you very much for saying it. Is it true that the five victims will split the total of his estate after everything sells? Part of the plea bargain was that uh, they will uh, divide the, the estate. Uh, he agreed to that as, as part of his sentencing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so is he supposedly a millionaire or not? It doesn't look like he is, but he, yeah. if he is, he's a very frugal one. Yeah. I think frugal is, uh, is, is a good term for it. Cheap was, yeah. the, was what his son said. Yeah. I don't think he ever spent a penny uh, that he made in his life. Uh, he made some very wise investments. Uh, so I, I think he, he had a very good chance of being, uh, we don't know how much, but we heard anywhere from uh, a couple of million to uh, 28 million was, mm -hmm. was the top end, but mm -hmm. the, that's being tracked down now to try to find out exactly what he is worth. You know, I always look at every you know, life experience and say, what am I supposed to learn from this? But, you know, I think after experience like this, you say, Jesus, you don't have to teach me nothing else. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I need to know another thing, yeah. Jesus. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. What, yeah. what what do you learn from something like this? I mean, I just learned that, you know, you can't be so trustworthy and, I mean, definitely never, ever get into a car with somebody that you don't know. Yeah. yeah. It was the dumbest mistake I ever made in my whole life. Yeah. Dumbest mistake I ever made in my mm -hmm. whole life. I mean, I wish I could go back. Mm-hmm. And how are you, were you able to integrate back into your, did you have counseling? No, 
No, I'm the type of person where I just feel like I can just deal with everything myself. But it has affected me, and I am trying to get counseling. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. My yeah. God, you were held in a dungeon, stained. Well, you know what? I mean, it is, I'm not even trying to make light of it, but to say it has affected me. You were held in a dungeon, mm -hmm. chained and raped every day. Yeah. yeah. I, would, I would think it would affect the way you... It would affect everything. Mm -hmm. Lesson for you. Yeah. This happened a much longer time yes. for, ago for you. You were 14 years old, so. Yes. Um, lesson for me is just what she was saying. Don't ever get in a car anybody you don't know. You just don't know what can happen. Mm -hmm. And for us, we... Yeah. We pay the price. Yeah, you pay the price. But I, I'm, I'm sure, you know, when you got out and said, you know, looked at the sky and said, thank God, because what is, what is really interesting is that he didn't kill them. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. And, and do, we, do we know why? We don't. You know, when we uh, first got into this case, we invited the FBI to, to send profilers, and they did. And this Jamowski fits none of the profiles. Mm -hmm. uh, he didn't fit the profile because there was such a range of ages for women, like 14 to 53. 14 to 53. Uh, every, different races. Every, every one of the, the women that, that we dealt with was a different race. Uh, none, of the, none of the... And the fact that he allowed them to see his face and then turned them loose. Yeah. Yeah. What do you want to say to Jamelski, if anything? I just want to say, how could you? You know, you made my kids think that I was dead. Um, how could you? I mean, what gives you the right to take to treat me like a like an animal, no less than an animal? You know, it just makes me sick. The fact that this comes up 15 years later for you, 15 mm -hmm. years later for you, you never had therapy. Did you talk about it with your family? Were you able to put it no, behind you? We didn't talk about it. Yeah, we just. We tried to go on. You tried to go on. She basically buried it. You buried it. Yeah. All of us need help and need help in processing information and being able to talk about things. And the fact that you've spent all of these years not even letting it out has, cha you know, has changed who you are. Oh, yeah. It's changed who you are and the possibilities of who you could be. And the fact that you go in and you're chained in a, in, in a dungeon and raped every day, that changes who you are. And, yeah. and you really need help in, in, in processing that, so. Oh, yeah. Okay? Thanks. And it's okay to get it. Yeah. <laughs> thank you, Kirsten. And Jennifer. Thank you, Jennifer. Sheriff Walsh, thank you very much. So th these are the stories behind the headlines. The abduction of an 11-year-old Florida girl, Carly Bruscia, was captured on a security camera. And the footage of that kidnapping was played repeatedly, as we all know, in millions of homes around the country. Just going to give you a few seconds of it. It's every parent's worst nightmare. And this time, it was caught on tape. February 1st, 2004, 11-year-old Carly Bruscia was on her way home from a friend's house when she was snatched by a stranger. Carly's body was found days later at a church, only two miles from where she was abducted. Joseph Smith was arrested and charged with her kidnapping, rape, and murder. He has pled not guilty to all charges. A month later, 15-year-old Ashley Shuring was riding her bike in Hudson, Florida, when suddenly a car stopped in front of her. 
driver got out, yanked Ashley off her bike and started dragging her toward his car. But Ashley remembered what happened to 11-year-old Carly Brucia, and she wasn't going down without a fight. After an intense struggle, after an intense struggle, Ashley managed to escape. Come on out, Ashley. Tell us about it. Wow. So how did you get away from him? Um, he had grabbed me with, um, with one arm, and he was pulling me. And I... So you're just riding your bike? Right. And a car pulls up? Yeah, he pulled up behind me. Mm-hmm. And I... On, like, a main street, a um, isolated... He pulled off um, onto a side road and uh-huh. parked parallel behind me. Uh-huh. And he came up, and he grabbed me, and he pulled me off the bike, and he started pulling me toward the car. Um, at first, I was screaming and kicking and yelling, and um, he got me pretty close to the car, and that's when I realized that if I didn't get away, then I was going in that car, and I wasn't going to come back. Yeah, yeah. Good for you. Yeah, that, that really is one of the most powerful uh, uh, messages that I'd ever heard. Like 10 years ago on this show, we had a security guy who said, never allow yourself to be taken to the second location. Right. And if you don't put up your biggest fight wherever you are out in the open, mm-hmm. that wherever you're being taken to, you're going to be isolated and it's going to be right. a, yeah, harder for you. So. You recognize that because you had seen the tape of Carly? Yeah, my mom and dad had um, sat us down, and me and my sister watched it repeatedly, you know, over and over. My dad would tell us, you know, don't just go, don't just go, you know, fight. If any, you know, go down fighting. Just make sure that you fight. Do something so uh-huh. that you, you don't just walk away with them. Uh-huh. And so you had that in your head. Right. Yeah. When it's happening to you, did it feel, like, surreal? Did it feel like, I cannot believe this is happening to me. <laughs> yeah, like, at first I was terrified. Like, I, I didn't know what to do, and I panicked. I was just screaming, and and then uh, once he got me closer and I and I realized, you know, I don't want to, you know, not come home. I, I, my family is great, and I didn't want to, you know, it's so... <laughs> I, I just didn't want to... Yeah. It's a good thing. <laughs> okay, so, so... Mm-hmm. So, um, when I got, you know, closer to the car, I'd, I wanted a better ending, you know, and I guess it turned out So that what way. did you do? What did you do? Um, he had... He started to turn me toward the car to get me in the back, so he had me by both arms. And I went up like this, which got him off me, and then I pushed him backwards, and he stumbled back. Ashley's parents, Scott and Sandy, are here. And you actually, Scott, I understand, help track down uh, the man who tried to abduct your daughter. Yes, How'd we that did. happen? What'd you do? Um, I got the call at work, so I... Uh, you got I, the call at work, and what was the call? The call was that uh, somebody attempted to, to abduct Ashley, and that I need to get there right away, so I got there within minutes. Uh, my brother and myself. And uh, when she started giving her statement to the, to the law enforcement, um, she started giving a good description and, and a good description of the vehicle. And he had told her he was going to take her out on this boat and down to the beach. So immediately I told my brother, let's go. Let's go look for him while they were getting the statement. Yeah. 
What, what was he saying to you while he's um, pulling you? As he was pulling me, he said some just really obscene, like really negative things to me. And before he got me in uh, to the car, he told me that he had a boat that, at Hudson Beach that he was going to take me to. Okay. And so you and your brother got in the car. Well, we headed down there, and um, being that we know the area so well, we started, you know, searching places, and, and we found this boat that was because it was anchored. He said it was anchored. We found this boat that was anchored, and there was nobody there. So I said, well, and it wasn't really on the beach. So then we headed over to the beach, and um, when, as we got closer to the to the area, we seen a seen this a person fitting that description just walking across the parking lot. The same that same day. That within. 35 minutes. Really? And then 35 minutes. So, um, my brother said, that, that, that's him right there. That's who Ashley described. And I said, uh, let's find a vehicle. And we just went like another 50 feet and looked in the parking space and there was the vehicle. And when I had left Ashley and my wife, the, the, the sheriff's department was there. And I told them that if, if I located the suspect, I'd call him on a cell phone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which, which, which was really hard to do. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we, we, we had just kind of parked, and, and he went over to the vehicle, and, and he got in it, and uh, he was in it for a few minutes. So I, I picked up the, phone, uh, the cell phone, I called, uh, called my wife's cell phone to tell, the, tell her to get the sheriff's department down there, and that we were just exurbent. And, uh, <laughs> but I, I, didn't th I didn't know how long I was going to hold back from just exurbent. <laughs> yeah. So and so they, they arrived and arrested. They, they arrived, and... Um, his name is, he's 56 years old, this man was. Harold Carroll, his name, was captured and charged with attempted kidnapping. And investigators found uh, duct tape, rope, and drugs in the trunk of Carroll's car. He's being held on a half million dollars bail. Now, what will happen to him? Because you know what, think, what really would tick us off? <laughs> what would really tick us all off? Is, is if that guy is back on the streets in two years. Yeah. I mean, if that happens, then, you know, that whole, your whole town should just rise up and, uh, and march in the street. That should not happen. Right. In, in light of the Carly thing, you know, um, from everything we read and, and heard in the media, that that, 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 that guy that abducted Carly was like on probation and he should have never been on the yeah, street. The, yeah, the yeah. judge and all got a lot of heat for that. And uh, I, th I think... Um, That's, I'm saying that, that the people of your city should put the heat on who, whoever needs the heat. Our state attorney and um, yeah, they in need the, the law heat. enforcement there so far have been real cooperative and doing a really good job. I, I think they're going to, you know, really do the right thing. I think because they know they're going to have a lot of pressure on them if they don't. So right now it looks like they're doing it doing the right thing. When you think about, uh, yeah, I just saw the tears. You said, because you're thinking about what could have happened? Right. Um, it's, it's good to be home and safe. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm really glad you are. Thank you. We're glad you are. Aren't you glad you sat down with that tape? You know, I always say this, that, you know, every, you know the, the news is you know, on and we're bombarded by images, but... I think ultimately everybody's story is, 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 is not told so that we can all be voyeurs, so that we can learn from the stories. So we can learn from the stories. Right. And I that's mean, a, a class. We sat our kids down and we always taught them to fight back and, and very rarely are our kids allowed to go anywhere. But we're just as complacent as anybody else. Even though we taught them that, we always said it wouldn't happen to us. Like just about everybody, 
Elsums. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, they're in, it's not our neighborhood. We're in a good neighborhood. They're in your neighborhood. They're in everybody's neighborhood here. That's you right. just don't know. They're That's your neighbor. Right. They're everywhere. That's right. Thank you so much. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to The Oprah Winfrey Show, the podcast. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Oprah Show, the podcast. And I thank you for listening.